Well, you guys go ahead and take a seat. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, grab that and meet me over in Proverbs chapter 14. We're going through a short summer series through the Proverbs. Last week, I walked you through Proverbs chapter 1 because Proverbs chapter 1 is the beginning of wisdom. And if you're going to understand wisdom literature at all, you have to understand that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And now over the next several weeks, um, we're going to walk through our favorite Proverbs. And I think today might be my favorite proverb. It's one that we don't talk about a whole lot, but I love it. It's in verse 4. Here's what it says. Where there are no oxen, the major is clean, but abundance of crops comes by the strength of the ox. How many of you know that there are a few things in life that are worse than a brand new baseball glove? You ever try to play catch with a brand new baseball glove? What I remember back in college, every Monday, they would give us a brand new football to play. And there's nothing more useless than a brand new football. So all week long, we would scrub down that ball, we would get it muddy, throw it in water, so that the ball was ready to play with on Saturday. On Monday, you could not throw a spiral with that ball, and yet by Saturday, that was the best ball you've ever seen. I remember when we bought our first house. You walked in and the house was staged. It was beautiful. It was the last time that house was ever clean, right? Everything looked perfect. All the, all the furniture was nice, but there was something unsettling about that house. It felt stiff. You know, there's nothing like seeing the growth that happens in a messy house, right? I got four kids. My house is never clean, but it's beautiful. You wear in that baseball glove, Man, it is amazing. See, you can walk into a stage house, you can walk into a showroom floor, but unless you have some stuff tearing up the place, there's no beauty there. A house that is never clean, but has kids and smiles and joy and the fragrance of playtime is just worn in with love. Beautiful things, beautiful things are messy. They really are. Uh, safe lives, safe lives that take no risk. They, they might look good, but listen to me, they never grow. They never, ever grow. Perfect footballs, they look great sitting on a shelf after somebody autographed them, but they're useless to play with. The other day, <clears throat> Allison and I were bored, uh, so we turned on uh, the show Suits, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, it back in the day, that was like our favorite show. And the show suits, it shows a bunch of these guys, and they look like they have everything together. They live in rooftop Manhattan, um, skyline suites. They have $2,000 tailored suits. They all went to Harvard, and they live, and they work in corporate law, and yet they lack families. They lack joy in their relationships. They're hollow shells. They look all neat on the outside, but on the inside, they're empty, and they just work all the time. Here's my fear for a lot of us. We will work really hard to have the perfect life. We'll strive to live in the gated fences and drive the nice cars and have the extravagant vacations, but you know what you're going to miss out on if you're not careful? You're going to miss out on the beauty of the mess. You're going to miss out on the beauty of what happens in the messiness of life. So here's the big idea for today. If you want to be wise, you have to learn to embrace the mess. You have to learn to embrace the mess. I want to look at three practical areas today of where life can be messy and yet, if you will embrace these three areas of messiness, you will find abundant joy. Here's number one, spiritual growth. 
Hold your place in your Bible, if you have that, and flip over to Romans chapter 7. So, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you need to find your way there, flip over to Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he, if you take the book of Romans and you divide it into different sections, once you get to Romans chapter 8, you get some shifts, but at the end of Romans chapter 7, he, he what I think gives you the most honest depiction of humanity in the entire Bible. He's struggling. Yo, this guy is talking about this inner war that is happening in him as he's walking with Jesus. He's like, I don't know what to do. Hey, if I can synthesize it down, he says, I continually do what I don't want to do and I don't want to do what I do. Any of you ever been there? That's the story of my life. I, like sometimes I sit in bed at night and I think, God, would you just change my heart? Like I know, I know in my mind that I want to walk with you and I want to worship you, but I also know just how evil my thoughts are. And if you could spend one day in my mind, you'd probably never show up to this church again. The sins that I battle on a daily basis, the sin of pride. Like C.S. Lewis said, the sin of pride is not having to think that I'm good. I just have to think that I'm better than you. If you didn't know that, that's actually what pride really is. I just look at you and I'm like, I'm better than that guy. The sins of anger. When I blow up at my kids and my kids don't know why I'm mad. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm mad. But oftentimes, they're getting, they're getting the leftovers of something that happened that they don't deserve, right? The sins of lust. You know, these things, if you didn't know this, I just want to tell you something. Confession, I'm just as jacked up as you are. And so was Paul. Paul, the apostle who wrote and responsible for most of what happened in the New Testament, is sitting here saying, I'm fighting this battle of inner temptation within me, and it's messy. Jesus, you have radically saved me. I know that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with you, and yet every single day I go through this continual battle of wanting to love you and wanting to hate you. I go through this continual battle of loving myself and hating myself. I go through this continual battle of doing what's right, and everybody thinks that I'm a superhero because I'm the Apostle Paul, and yet I put my head on my pillow at night thinking I'm a failure. You ever been there? Listen to what he says. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. You ever been there? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I'm going to say it again. You ever been there? You ever just hated yourself so much because you know that you're a fraud? Ladies, let me just tell you, the number one insecurity of your husband is that he thinks that one day you're going to find out that he's a fraud. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do the right things. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Listen to what he says. Wretched man, evil man that I am, explanation point. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> Y'all, Life is messy. 
It's messy. Sanctification is not this point where you became a Christian and then everything else is glorious until you die. No, it's messy. Do you see the inner struggle? Here's the reality. When you became a Jesus follower, you were given all of his righteousness, every bit of it. It was gifted to you, and here's the key word. You need to understand this, positionally. Meaning, meaning in that moment, your position or your court-appointed justification is, is perfect and righteous. That's what it says, but you're still a work in progress. You're still gonna battle temptations. You still have this thing called a body. If you didn't know this theologically, the reason why you have to die is because this last remaining part of you, this physical body, is the thing that's deteriorating, and yet the moment you became a Christ follower, this inner being, even though you're one person, you're not two parts, you're one person, this inner being is completely new and transformed in that moment, which means, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anybody's in Christ, they are a new creation now, which means you can actually say no to sin now but you got this thing kind of clinging to you, this physical body, which means you're always gonna fight this temptation, always. So listen to me. If you feel like your life is a battle, you're not alone. If you're sitting in this room and you're looking at so-and-so and you're thinking, man, they're just, they got it all together. They don't. They're lying, okay? They struggle too. You have this thing going on. And in one sense, you died that death, and in another sense, you're going to continually have to die to yourself every single day, because your physical body is going to desire sin all the time, even though your spiritual life doesn't. It's like you're, you're just fighting yourself all the time. Matter of fact, James would tell you that you, you're, you're, your body is at war, or enmity, he says, within itself. You're waging war within yourself. Now, here's the beauty of the sanctification process. If you embrace the Spirit of God inside of you, it is possible to overcome some of those things in the long run. I'm telling you, you may not be who you want to be, but you're not who you used to be either. God is doing a good work in you. And sometimes you don't see it, which means you need other people to call it out in you. Now, this is all messy. Spiritual growth is messy, but let me give you two quick reasons why spiritual growth is really messy. If we're honest, number one is this. I'm going to offend some of you so badly right now. You're a bunch of Pharisees. That's why it's so messy. Here's the problem. There's a tension to be managed in the Christian life between spiritual growth and grace. And some of you don't, mention, you don't manage that very well. Right, the longer you're a Christian, the more you focus in or you lean in on spiritual growth and the less you're gracious to others. What's crazy, though, is you never stop giving yourself grace. You don't hold people to the same standard that you hold yourself to. See, this is what the Pharisees did. It's exactly what they did. These guys, by the way, they get a bad rap. Really, the Pharisees were trying to follow God. But what they did is they hedged around God's law over 400 laws so that they would never break God's law. And in their effort to not break God's law, they actually created a whole new religion to where they stopped following God altogether. One of the most convicting passages of scripture in the entire Bible is when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, hey, you've abandoned the law of God for the traditions of man. In your attempt to be righteous, you've actually become a Pharisee. 
And that's what happens to a lot of us. Because if you're not careful, you will set up standards for other people and you won't help them get to Jesus. You'll actually just create a whole new religion. I've told you this before. There's a psychological study that I go back to often called the shrinking freshman syndrome. Here's what it says. When you're a freshman in high school, you've just come out of middle school, like the dark ages of life, right? Everything's awful, okay? Sometimes I look back at those pictures and I'm like, who told me I could dress like that? And you get into high school and you've arrived. Man, you deserve to be there. You want to be treated like you deserve to be there. The only problem is, is that the seniors in high school don't look at you that way. I mean, they got a little bit of hair on their face. They're driving cars. You've barely hit puberty. And they think you're a baby. You know what's funny about that, though? Those same seniors not that long ago were freshmen that thought that they belonged. That short span of four years made them go from the people who thought they belonged to the people who were doing the same exact injustices that they didn't want to happen to them. The Christian life, the same thing happens. When you first became a Christ follower, you struggled immensely with your sins, and yet you just wanted people to be patient with you. You're like, dude, I didn't even know that was a sin. A couple years later, you're doing the same exact thing to other people that they were doing to you. And you become a Pharisee. That's what makes this all so messy. In the Christian life, if you are not careful, you will become an accidental Pharisee. Number two is this. On the flip side of becoming a Pharisee is this. The sanctification process, in that word, I know it's a big word, it simply means becoming more like Christ. It's messy because it takes really growing up. And I've told you this before, take, growing up takes discipline. But not only does growing up take discipline, growing up physically hurts. Again, I have four kids. Growth pains hurt. When they get new teeth, it hurts. When they grow six inches, it hurts. And it hurts just as bad for parents as it does for kids because none of us want to see our kids grow up. Y'all, can I just tell you that there isn't anywhere in the New Testament that says pray a prayer and you'll go to heaven. Contrary to popular belief, that is not what the New Testament says anywhere. You know what it does say? Follow me and you'll go to heaven. That's what Jesus says. Follow me. It's a followership. Discipleship is a followership and not just praying a prayer. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, and you'll have abundant life. Follow me, and you'll be with me forever. Follow me, over and over and over. Following Jesus means that you kind of have to give up some of your other stuff. You got to say no to something so that you can be led by something else. In one of the most provocative passages of scripture, Matthew chapter 16, listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus told his disciples, which actually in Greek means followers, if anyone would come after me, he let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know how offensive this was to people? The cross was an execution tool. 2023, what would it be? It'd be like the, 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 the gas, or the, whatever they give you now because they don't do electric chairs anymore. Imagine getting that tattooed on you like we get crosses. You know how offensive this would have been? Listen, if you really want to grow in the Christian life, you're going to have to say no to some stuff. 
following Jesus doesn't mean just praying a prayer and going back to your old life. Like you're gonna have to say no to sleeping around. You're gonna have to say no to getting drunk. You're gonna have to say yes to things like monogamy and morality. And I'm not saying that this is a checklist of stuff that makes you righteous. No, we know. We know Jesus makes us righteous. But if you're not dying to yourself and you're not living to follow the Jesus of the Bible, like you might be following a Jesus that looks more like you than it does the Jesus of the Bible. Like I'm just gonna say this. The Jesus of Southern Christianity tends to be more a reflection of ourself than it does the Jesus of the Bible. It, it tends to acquiesce to what we want. See, Jesus was radical. He was so radical that people left him behind because he would tell you that you have to give up your old life in order to receive this particularly good life. If you want joy and contentment, if you want fulfillment, it is found when you follow Jesus. If you are going to grow spiritually, you're going to have to live in this tension between giving grace and consistently dying to yourself to live for Jesus. And it's messy. It's messy. But it's beautiful. I'm telling you, that's where life is found, in the tension, the intersection of giving grace and following Jesus. If you want... If you want a clean life, you just go ahead and stick with Southern Swedish Jesus who hangs out in mama's grandma's basement at the church, never says anything negative to you, always agrees with you. You realize if everything in the Bible agrees with your theology, you're probably not reading the Bible correctly. It should be offensive. There are things in there that are just difficult. But spiritual growth happens in the messiness of this world. Here's number two, church growth. Church growth. Man, I think I could write a book on this one. Church growth is hard. It is difficult and it is messy. If you want the perfect church, good luck. Good luck. Because it doesn't exist. You know, if you're going to leave here because you're upset about something, that doesn't fit your preferences, you know what? You're gonna find something in the next church that's not gonna fit your preferences and you're gonna be entirely disappointed by that church too. When people say to me, y'all, the church is filled with hypocrites, you know what my response is? So what? Yes, it is filled with hypocrites. You're a hypocrite. So am I. I'm the chief hypocrite. Jesus didn't build his church to be a place for all these perfect people. No, it's a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. And you're in the process Embrace the fact that you're a hypocrite because you are. So am I. But God does great work in you and me whenever we are willing to embrace the fact that we are a work in progress. Listen, here's the reality. The vision for God's kingdom is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne of God, worshiping him together, and the church is supposed to be a reflection of his kingdom and I'm telling you, if you bring different cultures together, you're going to be offended. You're going to see the world differently. You're going to experience Jesus differently. You're going to rub each other the wrong way. But that's the beauty of a relationship. It's messy. Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was the OG of the seeker-sensitive movement. He, he planted a church in Chicago, South Barrington to be exact, called Willow Creek Community Church. And Bill, I heard Bill say this once. He said he built the church on this thing called the homogeneity principle. He said, basically, if you want to build a church and you want to see it grow, here's what you need to do is you need to basically have a formula where everybody that you're reaching is just like you. 
go after middle-class, suburban, majority culture people. And you know what? Bill's probably right. That is the easiest way to build a church, but I reject that because that's not the way God says to build a church. You know what I love about our church? I'm looking out at you guys right now, and I see people from different ethnic backgrounds, different countries, different places. I mean, on this row right here, I've got a brother and sister that's, I, I, I think, Korean, and right behind you, Nigerian, and I can look around the room at different people from different ethnic backgrounds, and it is absolutely beautiful. And it's the way God wants his kingdom to be built. The reality is, is if we want to build a kingdom that reflects God's kingdom, it's going to be messy, and we're going to get it wrong all the time, and we're going to be comfortable, uncomfortable at times, and we're going to offend people at times, but we're going to become more like Jesus in the process. Let me give you a list of things I've been told. You're too charismatic. You're not charismatic enough. I've been called a racist. I've been called woke. In the same day, by the way. I'm serious. Same day. I've been told that we talk about social issues too much. We don't talk about social issues enough. We care too much about church growth. I hear that one all the time. We don't care enough about church growth. I hear that one all the time. Again, same day, I've been told the same thing. All you focus on is church growth. You never care about reaching new people. I've been told that you don't focus on discipleship. I've been told you, you focus too much on discipleship. I've been told you don't focus on evangelism. I've been told you focus too much on evangelism. I've been told that you care too much about outsiders. I've been told you don't care about outsiders. I've been told you're too liberal. I've been told you're too conservative happens all the time. You know what the reality is? If you want to walk with Jesus, you're not going to fit neatly into the box. The box is easy. That's where all the things tend to, they, they go really well. People love you. They pat you on the back. But I've, I worship a God that most people didn't like, but the world changed through them. And his disciples, 11 of the 12 of them were killed for following him. The only one that wasn't was John because he was boiled alive, survived it, and sent to the island of Patmos to live out the rest of his days. One of the plumb lines we have around here is this. We are about gospel balance. And gospel balance tends to make everyone uncomfortable. I'm telling you, it would be a lot easier to grow a church if I gave you seven ways to a happier life every Sunday. You would leave here feeling really good about yourself. You would never, ever feel like you're a bad person at all. But the reality is you'd never grow. The point is this, is we aren't about growing a crowd. We're about calling a church to facilitate a movement that multiplies disciples. And that means that we're going to need to lean into a certain amount of things. Like this, you got to learn how to give each other the benefit of the doubt. You have to learn how to give each other the benefit of the doubt. You gotta learn how to be humble enough to be uncomfortable. Some of you are gonna need to start being okay with the fact that there are people in this room that are a lot more expressive in their worship than you are, and it makes you uncomfortable. And then, hey, you guys who are really expressive in your worship, here's what you need to understand. Just because they don't raise their hand doesn't mean that they don't love Jesus. God has designed us differently to function within our unique personalities, and we can learn a lot from one another. Acts 15. One of the most famous chapters on the Bible called the Jerusalem Council. What the Jerusalem Council is, is basically um, Peter, Peter goes to Cornelius, think Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. The gospel goes 
to Cornelius, the first Gentile. If you remember this, let me fresh your memory. Peter has a dream. All these animals come down. I call it the pig in a blanket dream, right? And God tells him, hey, whatever I call clean, don't call unclean. What he's showing him is it's not just that salvation's for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. So Peter gets to Cornelius. Cornelius confesses faith, and it's like this amazing aha moment. I told you this. At the same exact time, Paul is taking the gospel through Antioch to the Gentiles. And then the church in Jerusalem, who's led by James, the brother of Jesus, they don't really know what to do with these people. Do we make them go into these religious customs that we have? <clears throat> do they have to convert to Judaism? Well, by God's grace, they, they don't. They say no, because that's not the gospel. That's just another religion. But they do tell them a couple of things that they need to do. It's really fascinating. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 19. Therefore, the church says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. It's kind of an interesting take, isn't it? The, the apostles are sitting there. They're like, y'all, they don't need to be circumcised. They're like, praise God. But you know what they do? They, 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 they need to stop sleeping around, and they need to stop eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. The first one, you're like, okay, I get that. That, that makes total sense. But the second one's kind of weird, isn't it? And then he gives the rationale behind it. You see it? It's in verse 21. Because Moses was proclaimed in every city. You know what he's saying? Translation here, listen. There are Jews everywhere, and even though... The food that they're eating is totally okay with God. It creates a stumbling block or builds walls for their Jewish friends who are trying to accept them into the church. And there's some wisdom here. Y'all, it's messy. Listen to what he's saying. If you want to build a church, sometimes for the sake of everyone around you, you're going to need to say no to some things that God has said yes to because, because it's really difficult for people to get over the stumbling block that we are to get to Jesus. It takes a lot of humility to do that. Some of you are going to need to say no to some of your preferences because you're living for a bigger kingdom. You, you get that, right? Like it takes sacrifice and a vision to build God's kingdom, not my kingdom. My kingdom come, my will be done is quite easy. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done takes a lot of humility. I need you to hear me say this so you can even write it down. Healthy things grow and healthy things change. If we're going to be healthy around here, we've got to be willing to grow and change. Y'all, I love my kids. I love all four of them, like I love them, and I don't want them to grow up in some sense. And yet, because I'm a good dad, I want them to grow up. I want them to have families. I want them to get married. I want them to find joy in life and to become adults. But I grieve the fact that they aren't babies anymore. Sometimes I look at my oldest daughter, who's going to be 10 this year, and I'm like, what happened? Like, I miss the days when you didn't know how to talk back, <laughs> and you just did what I said. It was so easy. I'll take those sleepless nights all over again. And, and then again, Jim and some of my friends are like, you just wait, buddy. Wait till they're 16 and 25. But you know what the reality is? The maturation process is beautiful. They need to grow up. You know, some of you, some of you need to, you need to grieve for the fact that we're not in a middle school setting up and tearing down where you know everybody's name anymore. Like, there was something beautiful about that. But God's kingdom has to make room for new people too, is you gotta grow up. And it's messy. See, that means that we need to learn to manage the tension between caring deeply about personal growth 
in the Christian life and being patient with people as they grow in the Christian life. Here's a, here's a golden nugget that I want to leave you with, okay? I, I, and, and, and this is, if you want to know how a church is healthy, can I tell you what healthy churches are? Healthy churches have wildly mature people and wildly immature people in the same exact church. If all of your church, if everybody in your church is completely healthy and growing and being discipled and everybody's flourishing, do you know what that means? It means you're never reaching anybody new. It means you're not as healthy as you think you are and not as mature as you think you are because you're not doing the one command that Jesus said right before he left the earth. You should memorize it. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. If you're so mature in your Christianity that you never share the gospel with anybody, you might not be that mature. And if your entire church is filled with people who are brand new in their Christian faith, well, then you're not, you're not growing in the depth of discipleship that God has called you to. to. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, to mature into Christ-likeness. That we need the tension of both. Healthy things are growing constantly. And they're also always changing. See, if you want to grow God's kingdom, you have to be okay with embracing the mess. And as you do, as you let go, as you give the benefit of the doubt, God matures you. I'm telling you, the most mature people are not the people who can quote the most scripture. The most mature people are those who are filled with the spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the most mature people. I'm telling you, City Church, there's going to be a ton of things that you aren't going to love around here. But I promise you that God's word is our ultimate authority we will always pursue people, we will love deeply, and we will make room for more people to love Jesus because at the end of the day, we want to build God's kingdom. My question for you is, are you willing to embrace the messiness to live for a better vision of God's kingdom? God's kingdom that reaches the world, that seeks families, and that grows deeply in discipleship. You don't have to choose because we're about gospel balance. We want to see both happen, and it's a lot easier to live in the either or than it is in the tension of the both and. But what will happen if you do is that God will grow you deeply. See, if you want safety, go find a church where everybody looks like you, everybody votes like you, everybody thinks like you, and everybody worships like you. You will be comfortable there, but you will never grow. You will live in the echo chamber of yourself, and you will grow your kingdom and not God's kingdom. If you want to grow God's kingdom, you need to be okay with being offended at times, uncomfortable at times, but you will be enriched in every way, and God will grow you, and he will grow this city, and he will grow this church. You got to embrace the mess, right? If there's no oxen, man, the barn is super clean, but nothing changes. If you want to grow something, you got to bring in the messiness. Number three, relationship growth. C.S. Lewis has one of the most profound quotes that I go back to often. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Y'all, relationships take humility and vulnerability and trust. And you know, there's three relationships you have to get right if you're gonna grow in this life. You gotta get your relationship with God right. You gotta get your relationship with yourself right. And you gotta get your relationship with others right. They, they say that the most important voice in your life is your own, but that's not true. The most important voice in your life is God's. Do you allow the word of God to speak over you? Is that what's shaping your identity or are you? Research will tell you that 40% of your identity is shaped by what someone has said about you or to you. 40%. You might, you might think that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words should never hurt you. Y'all, that's the dumbest phrase ever because words can break your souls. It can destroy people. Listen, you are shaped by the words that you hear every single day. If all you ever hear or speak to yourself is negativity, then you're going to be a negative person. Relationships that believe that you are not good enough are going to make you begin to believe that you are not good enough. So let me just ask you, what, who speaks to you most? What do they speak to you? And what are they saying? Did, did you know this? Just, just so you know, do you know who you speak to the most? Yourself. What do you say to yourself? You know, this was my childhood. I believed the lie that I was not good enough because I didn't come from the right family. I didn't have enough money. I was told I wasn't smart enough. My dad told me that I would never be good enough. You know what that does to you? You know what you begin to believe about yourself? Listen, I hear this all the time. This is, this is like, let me step onto my soapbox. It's not in my notes, but I just, I need to tell you guys something. Stop believing the lie that everybody has the same opportunities in life. Yes, you have opportunities, but sometimes people are beat up their entire life by other people to the point where they believe the lies about them, and it's just not as easy as you think. The formula is not go to school, make good grades, everything's going to work out. It's so much more complex than that. Life is messy, and it's difficult, and people carry some incredibly challenging things. If you would take the time to get to know people's stories, you'll become so much more empathetical to their realities. Not everybody's reality is the same. It's really tough out there. I, I think this is in my notes somewhere, but let me just say it now. Every single person is carrying a tragedy that you know nothing about. Everybody. Everybody in this room right now is carrying something heavy that you know nothing about. And when you assume that everybody's life is perfect and easy, it's a lie. Life is difficult, and it's messy. And what we need to do is we got to get better about giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm telling you, words shape the person you are. So stop letting relationships that are negative, even relationships with yourself, shape you into that type of person. Are you reminding yourself of what God says about you? Do you know the truth? Do you know that God's word says you are a beloved child of God, made in his image, worthy for him to die for? Do you know that that's how God feels about you? Y'all, it's messy. But scientifically, you can actually rewrite the neuropathways in your brain to tell yourself something different. You know what I love? I love when science catches up with the Bible. Romans chapter 12 has been telling you that for 2,000 years, that your spiritual worship 
can offer to God a living sacrifice and you can actually become something different. Thank you, science, for telling us what we already knew. You can actually rewrite the neural pathways in your brain by shaping it through God's message, not yours. But you gotta block out all the noise. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he said this, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. That is so true. That is so true. That's Romans 7. That's what makes this so messy. But just because it's messy does not mean it's impossible. Matthew 19, 26, what man says is impossible through God, all things are possible. You realize that, right? The, the lie is that every relationship is too risky, so don't give yourself to it. That's what, that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Don't believe that lie. You think you're safe, but you're not gonna become, you're not gonna become vulnerable. You're gonna become unbreakable. And that's a terrible place to live. You know, some of you think, I know that I'm gonna get hurt, so I'm just gonna avoid the hurt. There's a greater hurt coming if you do that. Listen, life is empty without having relationships. You were designed for community. You need to have a healthy relationship with God. Then you gotta give yourself to others, and you gotta know yourself. You have to have a healthy relationship with yourself, or else none of this is gonna work. So here's the deal. The only way that you will ever have a healthy relationship with yourself and others is if you stop believing the lies. You are so much more than your greatest sin. I used to do this all the time. People like to, culture likes to fit your identity into a box. Like, you're gay, so that's all your identity. Instead, Christians like to shrink that down. What I tell people to do is, no, just build a bigger box. Absolutely, it's a part of who you are, but that's not who you are. You're not your greatest sin. You're not your greatest temptation. You are so complex and so much more than that, and you need to stop believing the lie that that's who you are. You degrade yourself and the people around you whenever you tell people that that is who you are. No, you're not. You're a child of God. You're so much greater than your greatest failure. You're a complex person, and how arrogant of you to not forgive yourself when the God of the universe forgave you. God forgives you. Like some of you need to let go. When you have a healthy relationship with God and yourself, you can have a relationship with others. But I'm telling you, it is so messy because you can't control other people and other people are messy too. But here's the truth. You were designed for relationship and that's Lewis's point. You can keep yourself to yourself, but you are going to die inside. You're gonna become a hollow shell. Let me just say again, life is messy. It is difficult, y'all. And everybody in this room is carrying a tragedy that you know nothing about. And when life is hard, I, I just, I love you too much to lie to you. There are just certain things in life that I don't know why they happen. And I don't know why they happen to you. Sometimes you're gonna get, sometimes people just get sick and there's not a good answer. I've sat by the hospital bed of a five-year-old boy as he took his last breath and I looked at his parents and I'm like, I don't know why. I don't have a good answer. Like sometimes it just doesn't work out because life is messy. And sometimes hurt people hurt people. And it's not always because you did something wrong. Sometimes it's because they're deeply fractured, hurt people. And how much different would our lives be if we led with empathy instead of judgment and began to try to learn to understand? Like, I know it's hard, but if you live long enough, you're gonna have some scars too. That's just the way it is. But I'm telling you, those scars are what make you who you are. 
So some of you sometimes pray, God, why did my past have to be that way? Do you realize sometimes you're, you're praying God to erase who you are? Because sometimes the, your past and the things you go to make you the person that you are, and you're a beautiful person. I, I, heard, I heard a theologian say one time, never trust a man that doesn't walk with a limp. If you hadn't been beaten with a couple sticks in your life, you probably haven't lived yet. Sometimes the cancer diagnosis draws you into dependence on, you, on God, and, and he saves you from yourself. Sometimes those hardest things in life, as you look back, shape the humility that you have. Y'all, I, I know that I've talked about this, but last year when my wife went into the hospital for a couple months and I didn't know if my son was going to live, it did something to me in a great way. It made me depend on God more and love you more through the process. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And listen, I, we're, the, we're the fortunate ones. The outcome ended up being good. My son is healthy. And my wife is healthy. But there's been re- residual impacts on our life. And I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, God helped me to stop believing the lie that I can do it on my own. Because every single day was a day of like, God, I don't know what's going to happen today. This is what the proverb is trying to tell you. You can keep everything clean. Don't give yourself away. Don't open yourself up. Don't have meaningful relationships. But if you don't, you'll never be fully human. You'll never experience the joy of life. You know, it's like church. I know, I know that people do dumb things in this room all the time because I do them. We hurt each other. Listen, I should just say this. I know I've hurt some of you and I'm sorry. But that's not, it's never, well, I don't want to say ever, but most of the time it's not with bad intentions. We're just messy people. And sometimes we do things that we don't mean to do. We consistently let each other down. But I'm telling you, there's something beautiful about the relationship and the mess. God uses the messiness to form us. When you give the benefit of the doubt, when you let go of offenses, when you learn to forgive people, and man, when you live for a a mission bigger than yourself, God does something beautiful in you and in his church. Don't you get that? The secret to this proverb The secret of this proverb is that it's in the messiness of life that God makes things beautiful. I love my daughter, Addie, my my seven-year-old. I love her to death, and she is the messiest human being on the planet. Now, sometimes I go into a room, and I'm like, I I can't see the floor. She loves to do art projects. And when I say art projects, like, she destroys the house. There's stuff everywhere. Glue on walls. She's coloring stuff. Like, I'm like, you took dirt from outside. Like, the house is an absolute train wreck. And then she makes the most beautiful piece of art you've ever seen. And sometimes I think that's what God wants to do in your life. As you're walking through the mess, it looks like a train wreck, but then he turns the tapestry over and it's the most beautiful piece of art. I love, I'm gonna end with this. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Matthew 14 where Jesus calls Peter to walk on water. I'm gonna go through this quickly. But here's the background. Jesus, he just gets done feeding thousands of people, 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people, scholars say. Um, And he takes a little boy's happy meal, right? And multiplies it out and he feeds all these people. And immediately, don't, don't miss the importance of words. Matthew 14 says, immediately, Jesus sends the disciples away. Why is that important? Because I think oftentimes God does amazingly difficult things in your life right after you see a miracle because he wants to know, did you worship me or did you just want the miracle? And you worshiped yourself. So immediately, he sends them away. And listen to what it says. Verse 22. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. By the way, notice that Jesus prioritized his relationship with God first. Then he prioritized his relationship with his disciples and the crowds. He does the same exact thing we just talked about. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against it. All right, without getting into a bunch of details, here's what you just need to know. They were row, row, rowing the boat, but it wasn't gently down the stream. These were professional fishermen, and they were absolutely terrified. This must have been like gale force winds. Matter of fact, I was on the Sea of Galilee not long ago, and I was told we're on a boat, and they said there's something unique about the Sea of Galilee where when you're in the middle of it, oftentimes these storms just pop up out of nowhere. So it looks like you're on a bright, sunny day, and all of a sudden you've got a storm, and, and things are just wild. Um, that's probably what happened here. They were terrified. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And he said to them, and, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I want you to notice the voice of God. When the voice of God is loud enough for you to hear him, it drowns out the mess around you. In Greek, the sentence construction here literally is, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. He uses the Greek word ego and me, which is the exact same phraseology that Moses got to hear God say when Moses says, God, tell me your name. What does he say? You go tell him ego and me. You go tell him I am. Jesus says the exact same thing. In the middle of the storms, when life is messy, he looks at them and he doesn't calm the storm. What does he say? No, take heart, I am. You might be scared. The diagnosis might be coming. Life might be messy. The child might be wayward. But take heart, I am. I'm in charge of this thing. I'm the one who calms the storms. I spoke and the world came into being. I created you. You don't need a different situation. What you need is you don't need to find peace. You need to find the Prince of Peace. That's the point. Y'all, this is what Jesus was telling them. Hey, life is messy. The storms are coming, but take heart. Take heart, I am. And Peter, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. Here's what he's saying. Don't believe, the, don't believe that the safest place is on the land or even in the boat. God, if that's you, this is where I need to be. I need to be with you. Even if we're in the middle of a hurricane, God, I need to be with you. See, it's not health, it's not safety. That's not the safest places. Matter of fact, in those areas, you tend to find independence. The safest places with Jesus in the middle of the storm. So he says, come. Come. So Peter got out of the boat and he starts walking on water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw, key phrase, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. You notice this. The only way he could see the mess as if he took his eyes off of Jesus. In football, we used to call this tunnel vision. You can play in a stadium of 100,000 people, and if all you see is what's right in front of you, then you don't have to see the crowds. What ended up happening is the same thing that happens to us. You begin to sink into despair, not because your circumstances, but because you're paying too much attention to your circumstances. You take your eyes off of Jesus, and you put them onto those things. That's when you start to sink. So Jesus... Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and he took him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
You ought to ask yourself that same question. When he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. You know, do you realize that Peter's not the hero of this story? I often get told, like, Gee, Peter, look, look at Peter, and it was his failure. He's not the failure either. The hero of this story is Jesus, just like the hero of every story is Jesus. See, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and onto his circumstances, did you notice that Jesus never takes his eyes off of him? Even when he's sinking into despair, the God of the universe intimately reaches down his hand. And, and you know, you often hear this as a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. No, it's, oh, you of little faith. Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I care about your circumstances? Come on. See, Jesus is closest to you when you're sinking. The beauty of this story is that even in the messiness of life, you don't need a different set of circumstances. You need to trust the God who knows your circumstances. Take heart. I am. Take heart. I am. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help us to not believe the lie that safety happens in mess or in, in perfect situations. God, I pray that you would help us to believe the truth that life really is messy. It really is complicated. But God, you are good and you are kind and you walk with us through the mess of life. Help us, Jesus, to keep our eyes on you. Lord, I do believe that there are people in this room right now that are carrying a tragedy that we know nothing about, but you do. So Lord, as they're sinking, I pray that they would look up and see your, your fatherly, compassionate hand reaching down to them with that gentle rebuke, oh, you of little faith. God, would you increase our faith? As we walk through the messiness of life, would you help us to keep our eyes on you? You are faithful and kind, and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.